На Украине провайдеров интернета Начал обязались... действовать указ президента Порошенко о запрете российских интернет-ресурсов. соцсети Одноклассники и ВКонтакте, сервисы... Визовый режим для россиян. Почему на Украине вновь... And a potential visa regime for Russian citizens. Step by step, bit by bit, law by law, the authorities in Kyiv are severing ties that bind Ukraine to Russia. And it appears to all be adding up to a not-so-velvet divorce. Hello from our broadcast headquarters in Prague, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFRL. Joining me here in the studio is co-host Mark Galliotti, a senior research researcher at the Institute of International Relations in Prague, head of its Center for European Security, and a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Dan. And also with us in the studio is Natalia Chudikova, managing editor of RFRL's Ukrainian Service and host of the program European Connect. Welcome back, Natalia. Good to see you. Thank you. Hi, Brian. So... When the European Union granted Ukraine its long-sought-after visa-free travel, President Petro Poroshenko said the move represented an important step in Kyiv's, quote, breakup from the Russian Empire. And it wasn't the only step. As I noted in the intro, in recent weeks, Ukrainian authorities initiated a series of steps designed to sever remaining ties with Moscow. Kiev has moved to block Russian social media sites like Kontaktia and Nadnaklasniki and Russian search engines like Yandex and Mail.ru. Legislation placing restrictions on religious organizations affiliated with, quote, aggressor states, which is clearly aimed at the Moscow Patriarchate, is working its way through the Verkhovna Rada, and lawmakers are now proposing requiring visas for Russian citizens traveling to Ukraine. Natalia, this sure looks like an orchestrated, deliberate, and coordinated policy, is it? Yeah, finally, some would say in Ukraine, because uh, President Poroshenko has been criticized for not doing it for three years already. And uh, he's in a difficult position because uh, once he starts doing it, he's criticized for uh, being not a liberal and, and so on and so forth. And on the other hand, if he's doing it, uh, if he's uh, if he was not doing it, then he was reminded but that we are sort of in a state of war with Russia and it, 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 that it is a hybrid war doesn't make it doesn't make any difference that there are 10,000 uh, Ukrainians who were killed in this war, uh, more than two million uh, internal refugees in Ukraine and so on and so forth. So um, it, it does look like it, it, it creates a more clear situation about mm. the state of affairs with Russia. Now, the, 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 social, the blocking of the social media sites, there was a lot of outcry about this in the West. Um, a lot of criticism of Poroshenko saying he's acting like Putin, ironically. But I didn't, and maybe I'm missing something, but I didn't hear much outcry in Ukraine, which was... If it's true, surprising, given the amount of Ukrainians that use this site. Can you give me any insight on, on that? Because I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, well, there were political forces like the opposition bloc, the uh, former president uh, Yanukovych. That's predictable. Colleagues. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but not much more beyond that uh, bunch of people because uh, the... Uh, uh, social media is widely available in other forms. The Facebook has increased its Ukrainian sector uh, from uh, by 37% in one day after the mm. banning of the uh, Russian social <laughs> so media. Mark Zuckerberg's happy. <laughs> right. And uh, uh, the Ukrainian IT specialists are also happy because they can create 
uh, they can sort of fill the vacuum and uh, with the Ukrainian social, Ukrainian-based social media. Uh, also, the security arguments work quite persuasively. I think that uh, since 2011, uh, and especially since 2012, I think uh, after the uh, demonstrations on uh, Bolotnaya Square in Russia, the Russian uh, media, uh, social media, have been under severe control of the Russian special services. There was uh, an expose about that in the Russian uh, Nova Gazeta. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people sort of understand that uh, even though the um, it, it seems like it's a free conversation with the Russians, it's uh, as one of the bloggers put it, it's uh, like uh, having a conversation in the prison court. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't see the, uh, the, the walls and the barbed wire, it's still mm-hmm. under surveillance. Now, the other interesting piece of this is the religion. Um, I've been just noticing this more and more lately. Our, our old colleague, Paul Goebel, has been writing quite about a bit about it on, on his blog. But there are basically, two, as I understand it, two laws before the Rada. One which basically says that parishes can leave uh, the, the, the Moscow Patriarchate and join the Ukrainian Orthodox Church or vice versa um, without consulting Moscow. Um, that that's one law. The more, the more consequential law is a second one, which is going proposing putting restrictions in the activities of religions which are based in an aggressor state. And I believe we all know who that is and what religion, which religious organization that is. Can you can you say much about that? Are these these things have a good chance of passing? I would say that the first law is less controversial and better prepared about the uh, changing of the jurisdiction of the parishes. Uh, it's a process which has already started and has been underway for some time already. Uh, it's about some 150 parishes decided to, to change their jurisdiction from the Russian, from the Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate into the Ukrainian Church. Um, as for the second one, I, I think it's uh, more controversial because uh, uh, trying to consult the government while you appoint the leaders of the church, the bishops, I think that would really uh, meet with a lot of yeah. uh, antagonism in the Ukrainian society itself because it sounds like a control of the state and the control of the state under the church of any kind is the idea that the Ukrainians had bef- uh, well uh, had to deal with before and it, uh, it it was a really bad thing to do. Now I was reading a bit about this too which which suggests it might be less controversial than we think that although the 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 Moscow Patriarchate has more parishes in Ukraine than the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church has a lot more parishioners, and which suggests that a lot of these parishes of the Moscow Patriarchate are, exist simply on paper. That's, so perhaps exact, there's, there's... that's exactly right. And even in those parishes which decided to move to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Kiev Patriarchate, they decided to make uh, to uh, make something like a makeshift church in order to uh, remain as a parish, mm-hmm. in order to have this sort of box ticked that this parish still exists. Because it's the number of parishes which gives the... Uh, Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine, the uh, um, how do you say the 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 appearance mm-hmm. of a big of a dominating church, when in reality it isn't. Mm-hmm. 
And finally, we got the visas. And this is interesting because this started bubbling up just as Ukraine got its visa-free travel with, uh, with the European Union, something it had long sought. Now, suddenly, this issue, or maybe it's not so sudden, I started noticing it right, right around the time Ukraine got, got its visa-free travel status. Um, is this going to prove controversial? This, is, this seems to be irritating Moscow more than any of the other things, actually. Um, it's been there. The issue has been there ever since the uh, war erupted in the east and uh, the um, annexation of Crimea, uh, when uh, many Ukrainians um, called for uh, the um, cutting diplomatic ties with mm-hmm. Russia and uh, as part of it introducing the visas. Uh, the Ukrainian government was arguing that we have a lot of Ukrainians in the Russian soil and we need to protect uh, their interests. The other side would say that uh, we don't see a lot of effect in uh, protecting the interests of Ukrainians mm. and so on and so forth. But I think now with this um, visa-free travel to the European countries, I think it's it got more um, popular support. Mm-hmm. That re- that uh, decision would get more popular support. Mm-hmm. Because Ukrainians would be less less averse to not being able to travel to Russia because now they can travel to the yeah. European Union freely. Exactly. Mark, your thoughts on all these things? And there's, there's, there's probably more out there as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm very much, I mean, what it shows is that we have this kind of very, very bizarre, very postmodern war, neither hot nor cold, but sort of jigsaw made up of lots and lots of little pieces, some of which connect and, and, and some of which don't. On the one hand, one has moves, measures, which clearly were, frankly, overdue from a security as well as a political symbolism point of view. Take the visa issue. I mean, given that we know that Russia is engaged in an active program, destabilization of Russia, of using... Oh, so, of, 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 well, <laughs> that's an interesting question <laughs> for another interesting one. Freudian slip. There. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that was last week's podcast. Um, you know, of, of Ukraine, using both, obviously, sort of intelligence officers, but also criminals and, and other such sort of deniable assets. Well, by forcing them to take visas, it gives the Ukrainian state a far greater capacity to, A, monitor them, mm-hmm. know who's actually coming in, and B, if need be, just exclude them if it chooses not to, not to let them Yeah, in. it gives Ukraine control over the borders, which it does control, yeah. which it, right now, in fact, it it has control over those borders, but in reality, if Russians can enter without visas, they don't really Well, this is it, and, 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 and that's why it's not just a, a security issue, it's also a symbolic issue. The whole point of the uh, lack of a visa sort of regime between Ukraine and Russia was in part still based on this notion that somehow they were actually part of one primordial single beast, that in some ways it was a kind of artificial division between them. This is actually sort of strengthening that point to say, no... There is a country called Ukraine. There is a country called Russia. They may have certain historical interconnectivities, but now they are two separate states and can be treated in that way. Mm-hmm. So I think that's very important. If you take the Russian Orthodox Church, I mean, I do have some concerns about this notion of a sort of crackdown on, on a religion because it's a basis in an aggressor state. Because if nothing else... Um, I mean, and OK, very different circumstances, but that's the kind of rhetoric that is sometimes used by Russians against, for example, evangelicals, yes. Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia, because they regard America as, from a civilizational and cultural point of view, an aggressive state. Um, and so, I mean, although I can understand the rationale behind it, it's always worrying when there seems to be a convergence yeah, I think in rhetoric. They, they, they phrase that legislation, in fairness, in, in, a, in a broad general sense, but the intention is clearly aimed at the Moscow Patriarchate, mm, which is an arm of the Russian it's, state. But, but it's, again, it, it's, it's the same way as, for example, 
Um, I mean, okay, I fully appreciate there are different reasons, and I'll move to the second part of of, of the um, church um, policy, which I think actually makes a lot more sense. But the same way as in World War II, um, we didn't in the West say, well, Roman Catholics are by definition suspect because of where the Vatican is. So, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think there is just a concern there. But exactly when we move to this issue of allowing parishes free movement, I mean, that is, again, A, useful in the sense of the fact that the Russian Orthodox Church is clearly one of the Kremlin's instruments of geopolitical co- contestation. And secondly, um, it, it makes the point that we... We're not saying you can't be orthodox. You can just be a different orthodox, a patriotic orthodox. It turns this back into a struggle over sort of normative issues, soft power and so forth, identity, Mm -hmm. where it actually, you know, it's not only that Kiev has something to offer, it's that it benefits Kiev by making this a sort of a, a competition that it can win. It is, it is the, the, the Eurovision of orthodoxy. <laughs> um, it is a competition that actually, although on one level it doesn't really matter, on another level it has considerable symbolic mm. moment. Final point I'd make, though, social media, there I'm, I'm, I'm more sceptical because, firstly, I, I think that actually the level of control that Moscow um, exerts over Kontaktienko is not that great. Secondly, you know, you, you also had organisations like Bellingcat, citizen journalists, using um, this social media very effectively. Um, Presumably they still would be able to. They still to. will, but, but I, think, I think in some ways there is, a, there is a risk of actually almost encouraging Moscow to, to be more assiduous in trying to control um, the, the, these things. I think more to the point, I, I just think that... That was one of these cases where I think actually the, the, the security impact is negligible and the symbolic impact, I think, is more problematic. Um, but, you know, again, one couldn't and shouldn't expect a whole raft of policies to be universally great or universally terrible. The key thing is, I mean, the important ones are the visa issue and the church issue. And there, I think, on the, on the, in the main, these are actually important steps forward. Now, shifting from the very specific things, kind of going, stepping back and getting, getting all, almost, almost philosophical here. And actually, Poroshenko, in his remarks after the visa-free travel, was, he, said, he said, you have to look at this philosophically. Ukraine is coming home. And this is reversing 300 years of history of more or less continuous Ukraine subjugation to Russia. To Russia. Um, now... He's right in a historical perspective. Well, Ukra- actually. He, he, no. Well, okay, I, I, I knew you were going to disagree with that. <laughs> I just knew it. Um, but, but if you look at this historically, Ukraine was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and before that, the Polish-Lithuanian Kingdom, before it was part of the Russian Empire. So the ties to Europe go at the least one as far could back. could make the point. If, we, if we're really go, going to play sort of more historian than thou... Um, I mean, oh, actually, <laughs> if, you know, if one goes back to the grand duchies and so forth, I mean, actually, you know, in some ways, the irony is actually that Russia is Ukrainian rather than Ukraine being Russian. If we yeah. really want to, put, if you but, want, I mean, yes, that's, but, that's I mean, a good I, point. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm splitting hairs and being a smart ass. But the point is, which is so after well. all, what, what, <laughs> well, what else am I do. here for? Um, <laughs> Keeping but, us in but, the enlightenment. But so. the important thing is, is actually, in in, in some ways. Not so much whether historically they were there or they weren't or whatever. I mean, in a way, 
that's actually part of the Russians' game, is to play this sense that there is some kind of duty of the present to the historical narrative. It's not, actually. Well, Ukraine's they do, they, they do that, and at the same time, they twist the historical narrative. Sure, but I mean, even... But the, but the whole point is, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's, it's like saying, well, Britain's always been an empire, therefore we <laughs> ought to have another one. No, I mean, the key thing is, what... Where do Ukrainians want to be today? Where do they want to be tomorrow? And for me, I think in some ways, I find this more interesting philosophically and more, and more in a way, nationally heroic in that mm-hmm. it is precisely actually turning away from certain sort of past paradigms and saying, no, this is where we see our future home. This is where mm-hmm. we see the values that matter to us. Natalia? Uh, I completely agree with Mark, and uh, thank you for making this historical point so that I don't have to make it. <laughs> and uh, as for uh, the um, uh, different um, uh, discourse that there is in Russia and Ukraine, and I think it's a, it's a very important thing to notice that uh, there is... The Russians are talking about the past, that it's because of the past that you are determined to stay in one state and so on and so forth. While Ukrainians say we want to look in the future and we want to redesign our country, we we want to redesign our state. Uh, While at the same time, the Russian uh, state does not offer any view of the future. Mm-hmm. The view of the future is the uh, heroic past, yeah. and uh, the Ukraine, and in that Ukrainians completely disagree with the Russians, and I think that is the major split between the two states. Well, I would agree with both of you to a point because I do believe that interpretations of history matter, um, and the Russian slash Soviet interpretation of the relationship between Russia and Ukraine has been dominant even among until relatively recently even among Western historiography. And now this is beginning to change. And people like me, who studied Soviet studies in the Soviet period, and therefore my initial encounter with these historical questions was colored very much by a Russian-dominant, Russo-centric Soviet-era historiography. And now, thanks to a lot of good good historians, Ukrainian and Western, we're getting a clearer picture of uh, of Ukraine's place and in, in its distinctiveness from Russia. Um, something that you, you notice when you live in both countries, as I did in the 90s, almost immediately. I'm fond of telling the story of being in Ukraine and Russia in 93, 94, and watching identical political crises unfold in the two countries and the dramatically different way they were resolved. One, one, in one case, it was a very civilized early election in which the incumbent lost and stepped down. and the other, it was the shelling of the parliament. I think this speaks volumes about that, but I think that has historical roots. And I yeah, think there's something to that. But you realize that only because Ukraine has chosen a different future for itself. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't realize it in any other circumstances. No, no, I, w- I, I wouldn't. But I think they chose that future from the cel- their, themselves because of, 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 of the history I did. I think, I, I think the history does have some influence. But where I wanted to go with this was, regardless of these historical arguments, you do have these ties that have been there that are really tight, some of them familial ties across the border. Can Ukraine divorce Russia? Well, in many senses, it has already did it, because uh, most of the people I know who have families in Russia, they either don't talk to them at all, 
or they keep their conversations to family issues like health and um, <laughs> and things like that. Really, it's uh, it's been a very difficult and a traumatic uh, process, and every family can tell you a very tragic story about mm-hmm. that. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, they realize themselves that they cannot have a conversation like they did before because there is no f- common ground for that conversation anymore. Mark, your thoughts? Can Ukraine divorce Russia? I suppose, again, it, it depends in a way what, what divorce means. Well, it's, it's interesting because um, we tend to roll in the extent to which actually Ukraine and Russia's economies are very, very sort of yeah. heavily interconnected. Um, 12 to 18% of Ukraine's imports are from Russia. Um, sorry, uh, exports are, are to Russia, to Russia and yeah. anything up to about 20% of, of its imports, particularly sort of energy. Now, on one level, that should not matter. Two states can have perfectly sort of productive economic relationships, even while being two entirely independent states. The problem is, of course, we know it's not quite that easy. If we were talking about the United States and Canada, each of whom is the other's main trading yeah. partner, th- there wouldn't be an issue here. But we're talking about Russia and Ukraine. Exactly. This is the point. So in, in some ways, psychologically, has Ukraine, in effect, already divorced itself? Yes. Practically, so long as Russia is willing and, and perhaps more importantly, able to use economics uh, as an instrument, then in some ways it's a little bit like, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, again, I, I don't want to overpush the metaphor, but, you know, it's, it, it's like a divorce, which unfortunately is still being covered by all kinds of very sort of tough and <laughs> painful divorce clauses or the presence of a kid or, or, or something. I mean, in, they are not Custody totally separate. It, well, exactly. <laughs> Russia clearly feels it has visitation rights. Yeah. <laughs> um, it has demonstrated that all across the Donbass. Um, but no, I mean, you know, in, in, in practical terms, these, these will remain kind of dangerously interconnected for really quite some time to come. So it's a question of, in a way, how how Ukraine can obviously concretize as far as possible the psychological shift that has already taken mm-hmm. place. Now, another thing I wanted to touch on is the, the areas where this, this, this might meet resistance inside Ukrainian society. And I, I see two obvious places. Um, the Russophone, whether it be ethnic Ukrainians whose first language is Russian or ethnic Russians, um, because those two terms are often confused and conflated when they are, in fact, two distinct and different things. That's number one. And two, the oligarchs, um, who have relied and made a lot of money on their contacts with Russia. Do you see any resistance from either of these camps, Natalia? As for the Russophones, uh, either being uh, ethnic Ukrainian or ethnic Russian, I don't see much of the resistance from that, except for the, um, I don't know, the habit of speaking Russian or uh, using Russian language media. Which, which I don't think this is part of the divorce settlement. I think Ukraine's kind of solved that issue. I mean, at least uh, every time I visit, I don't see language being any issue anymore. Everybody speaks both. People they, they, people aren't very um, uptight about this, as, as some people, some some countries, neighboring countries to the north particularly like to like to lead us to believe. So. Well, according to the polls there is only less than a half a percent of people in Ukraine who do not understand the Ukrainian mm. language. So for everyone else, it's not the mm. real issue. It's uh, more than a status issue, the post-colonial issues and the identity issue mm-hmm. and things like that, which is, which is an important thing, but I don't really think that it's going to be a huge um, opposition to, uh, to the 
the uh, uh, measures to increase the, um, uh, the 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 way uh, the Ukrainian langu- language operates in the country. We we've seen steps like in that direction already. We've seen uh, dubbing of the films of the in- of the films which uh, are um, uh, shown in the Ukrainian cinemas. They are dubbed in into Ukrainian. A few years ago, when this decision was taken, there was a lot of discussion, a lot of uh, uh, controversy that the Ukrainian cinemas will be bankrupt. That didn't happen. The Ukrainians mm-hmm. are equally happy to watch them in Ukrainian now, mm-hmm. or maybe even more. As for the oligarchs, I think it's a much more difficult issue, and we see the opposition from them in on every corner, on every mm-hmm. uh, issue. And uh, that is because the Ukrainian economy has not been reformed and uh, they, of course, uh, try to stop that process uh, in every way. And uh, if you reform the economy, then it will help the issues that Mark was talking about, the dependency on the Russian economy, because uh, then you would create a completely different areas of the economy, completely different uh, uh, enterprises that do not need Russia for their existence. Mm-hmm. And then you can get into to the um, Estonian model, for example, mm-hmm. when they say the unofficial rule is not to have more than 10% business with Russia, because then you become vulnerable mm-hmm. for the Russian political uh, influence and things like that. And they learned, uh, Estonians learned from the Finnish experience, and uh, Ukrainians probably do not learn still from the uh, uh, from the Georgian experience. Right. When they uh, when they opened the Russian market again, they, the Georgians decided that to go back on the Russian market on, uh, in, in, in vast quantities, while even though it was politically, they exposed themselves. Yeah, for, for and the we're Russian. seeing the results of that. No, no, I think, Natalia, you hit on a really important point here, because a key component of this divorce is economic reform and the battle against corruption, because you're not going to truly divorce Ukraine from Russia and not and therefore decrease the influence of the oligarchs who are who, who would who would like closer ties with her not all of them but most of them would like closer ties with Russia until you reform that economy until you until you you you, you tackle corruption mark thoughts? yeah and that's that's the area that is clearly sort of lagging so far behind um and what what uh, two steps forward and often one and a half to two and a half steps back sort of movement is being made is to a large extent because of pressure from the IMF and, and all other kind of mm. in- institutions. Although there is clearly a sort of a, a civil society push for that as well, there's much less evidence that in that respect um, the government is really being affected by that. And, and this is exactly the problem. You, you have this astonishingly pervasive, not just a sort of culture of corruption generally, but precisely the power of the, of the oligarchs, and the power of also kind of a another subsidiary class of demigarchs, mm-hmm. um, you know, who, who are kind of orbiting around around the oligarchs. It's not even just simply, oh well, just these eight guys, ten guys, right. or whatever. They're they're the problem. It's actually there. There is a whole power structure, and of course, Poroshenko is one of them. He's a minigarch, but yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> now he's to, not. I was he say, was, yeah, when he became actually, president. It's, he was, it's, he was it's a, amazing how you can monetize the position of president, as I think some no, other people have discovered. <laughs> but um, in that respect, I mean, I think this 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 is the the crucial problem. If we look at other countries and their models, whether we're talking Estonia or Finland or Georgia or, or whatever, they did not have this same issue of this incredibly sort of powerfully entrenched oligarchy um, that was 
in a uh, in, in effect able to bypass so many yeah. of the other sort of constraints. No, I was I was speaking to an Estonian uh, security official last weekend and was talking about this this very issue about how Estonia has been pretty successful at basically resisting Russian attempts, despite that. If you look at the map, it's it's pretty amazing, right? And, and I said, what, what would you attribute that to? And I was trying to draw out, like, all the great things we're doing. But he, the typical Estonian modesty, he's like, well, we're lucky we don't have oligarchs. He said that was really that simple in a lot of ways. We don't have oligarchs. Now, if you look at the oligarchs, though, Akhmetov, for example, Renat Akhmetov, has lost a lot of his economic clout lately because much of his business was in the Donbass. He was doing, he was throughout the war <laughs> trading back and forth through, with his businesses and with Ukraine. The blockade kind of stopped that. Has Have his wings been really clipped? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a handle on this. I mean, it, you don't hear so much about Akhmetov anymore. You don't. You don't. Well, you hear about Firtash and his problems with the, with the law and the uh, problem of uh, uh, his um, court case in in Vienna um, about his extradition extradition to the United States. It's, uh, I think it's um, the. the uh, you still look at them as the whole clan, as uh, the whole uh, political class, which still um, becomes a barrier to modernizing Ukraine. So it's uh, the um, Maidan anti-oligarch revolution incomplete because these people still have a lot of clout. Mm. They still have a lot of influence on the Ukrainian uh, on the Ukrainian politics. And uh, I think Mark is right. It's not just about them. It's about uh, little monopolies all over Ukraine. Uh, even school can be a monopoly. Even a cemetery can be a monopoly. Mm-hmm. Anything can be a monopoly. So it's the the whole change of the mindset and the whole change of the uh, legislation to open up uh, all these little kingdoms to competition, mm-hmm. which, which Ukraine needs. Which is which is a project. I, mean, I know people criticize how slow the current authorities have gone, but it's, it's this is a project not for one presidency, really. This is a product, project for for multiple presidencies. We're seeing the beginning of a process, not not the end of one right now. Um, before we move on to the second half, I wanted to bring up again Estonia, because I think when I was preparing for this program, I was thinking a lot about Estonia in the early 1990s. Um, I was recalling how when Estonia decided to issue its own currency, almost immediately after the Soviet breakup, the IMF and the West were saying, no, 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 don't do that. That's foolish. Keep the ruble for now. And the Estonians were like, no, no, no. We're, if we're, if we're going to be independent, we cannot be having the currency of a, of, of a country that used to occupy us. Um, and they issued their own currency. And guess what? It was really successful. And, and, and it took off. Estonia immediately required visas for Russians. Almost immediately. Um, they took a lot of the steps back in 91 that Ukraine is moving toward now. Does the, what does the Estonian experience teach us? Can, you, can Ukraine possibly replicate that at this late stage? It would be able to replicate it if it consisted only on the of the western parts of Ukraine, which were not under Russian under Russian control until 1939. So I think uh, the, uh, the 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 experience or the history that we have been talking about recently mm. it's, it it really plays a great role here, and uh, a lot of uh, Ukrainians didn't uh, participate into in the uh, uh, anti-Soviet uh, campaigns, or they were not dis. They were happy in the Soviet uh, in the Soviet state. There was not a great um, 
liberation movement, right. uh, to put it uh, in these terms, which was squashed by the by Stalin, basically, uh, which continued until the mid fifties. Right. But um, after that, uh, Ukraine didn't have a lot of that, and I think uh, in the, the um, Estonian society, they always knew that they were a captive nation, which was not mm-hmm. a common notion in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Mark, your thoughts? Yeah, I very much. I feel that sort of for for Ukraine to to follow the same model, all it has to do is just be full of Estonians. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, for, for the Estonians, exactly. I mean, they they had in living memory been taken over by the Soviets. Um, they absolutely, I mean, they really did have a much sort of better claim to already have been part of the European cultural, yeah. political mainstream. Um, they didn't have oligarchs. They had an economy which actually, by Soviet standards, was relatively advanced. Remember, you know, even today, Ukraine's largest exports are basically iron and corn products. Um, you know, Estonia w- was in a rather different p- p- position. It didn't have to rely also on purely on sort of these kind of um, gross sort of things. And And in that respect, look... Estonia had a, a clear commitment to joining the West, which obviously, I mean, it was going to take time, but included the European Union and NATO, and a belief that actually it was reasonably likely that it could do so. Mm-hmm. Ukraine, it's it's that much harder um, to credibly have that kind of optimism, especially if you are essentially a kind of a, a cynical oligarch who is being expected to give up a lot now. Absolutely. I mean, let's face it, oligarchs can also benefit from being within the European Union. They can legitimize their ill-gotten gains. <laughs> and, and, and just simply, that you know, they can get subsidies, they can get all, all, all kind of benefits, whatever. But you might say, if you think that you actually have a fairly low chance of getting access to that, you're not necessarily going to invest, you know, mm-hmm. think, oh, well, I'll, I'll give up a certain amount now. I think this is, this is the problem. It's, at the moment, there is that sense of better to, to hold on to, to, yeah. to what we've got. And, I think, and, the, and the final point I, I would make is... That, I mean, in some ways, rather than just thinking of it, I mean, Estonians, you, you say in their modest way, they, they, they've managed to sell themselves and, and their model very well. I mean, in some ways, I think more interesting are the examples of the Central European countries, you know, in, in, in which we are now. Countries that perhaps didn't have quite that same sharply honed sense of, of injustice, I mean, except with the Poles, um, you know, and, and, and didn't necessarily have the same sort of economic basis, but above all were larger, more sprawling, there was, there was that much more to be done. And yeah, it, it's, it's still a, a process that is finished. I mean, actually, you know, Bulgaria is not the same as Belgium in terms of its institutions no. and its culture and so forth. I, th- I, th- I think we can all agree with that one. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, I, think, I think you've like, set off a controversy there, Mark. <laughs> 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 well, if, if, if you're going to pick a fight with anyone. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, I, I mean, I think we, we, we need to see it can happen, even in the context of, you know, many Central European countries do still have oligarchs. It is possible to do so, but that much harder. Yeah. Okay, on that note, we'll shift gears. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at another aspect of this divorce, how Russia's liberal opposition appears to be losing its enthusiasm for Ukraine. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFRL. Joining me here in the studio is co-host Mark Galliotti, a senior research researcher at the Institute of International Relations in Prague, head of its Center for European Security, and a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And also with us in the studio is Natalia. Talia Chudikova, managing editor of RFRL's Ukrainian service and host of the program European Connect. 
I'd also like to remind you, you could subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes. You could read the Power Vertical blog and watch the Daily Vertical at rfrl.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Российская позиция деморализована Украина's Euromaidan revolution broke out back in 2013-2014, Russia's liberal opposition was inspired. They held solidarity demonstrations in Moscow and other cities, and the slogan, For Your Freedom and Ours, came back into vogue. And while few dared speak out against the annexation of Crimea, many, like slain opposition leader Boris Nemtsov, vigorously opposed the war in Donbass. But today, the Russian opposition has visibly lost its enthusiasm for the Ukrainian cause. In an article in Republic.ru this week, the opposition journalist Oleg Kashin noted that the era of For Your Freedom and Ours is over. What do you make of this, Mark? Because this is noticeable. Yeah, exactly. very no, I, I, I definitely wouldn't wouldn't disagree. I mean, I think it's a combination of, of several things. One is that um, certainly you know, thinking of, of, of Navalny and co, people who actually begin to think that they actually have a real chance at maybe winning some kind of success, they do clearly have to think about what what is going to appeal to the mainstream. And at the moment, basically, standing up for Ukrainians is probably not... Um, going, going, going to sort of play well in, in, in the streets and outside the sort of liberal things. There's secondly, I think, yes, there's been a element of disillusion about the fact that sort of Ukraine hasn't provided them with this sort of blueprint for how you achieve legality and plenty um, quickly. There's also, I think, a sense that, in fact, um, the Ukrainians haven't shown Russia's liberals much love. Um, in the sense that they are precisely sort of treated as just sort of citizens of an aggressor state. Now, admittedly, it probably wouldn't do them, you know, do the Navalny's of this world much good to, to, to be visibly loved by the Ukrainians. But nonetheless, I mean, I, I think there is that sense that in, in, in some ways, well, why are we sticking up for people who aren't sticking up for us? Rightly or wrong, I mean, I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. saying that's right, but I think that that is definitely something I've heard from now, people there, in Moscow. There were exceptions. I mean, Nemtsov was very vocal. Um, on on the Ukraine issue, um, and actually was one of the organizers a lot of the of the sympathy demonstrations that that took place in 2013 2014. But others have of watched Navalny twist himself into pretzels over Crimea and over Donbas. Navalny, who incidentally is half ethnic Ukrainian, um, by the way. Um, but there's another. I mean, Taras, this is not that unusual. In an article this week, Taras Kuzio noted that it's not uncommon for liberals to back democracy at home and back imperialism abroad. This is not really all that unusual. But in terms of the Ukrainians showing the Russian the Russian uh, opposition love, well, I would point out that there's a lot of Russian diaspora who have resettled in Ukraine. And this is a, something I wanted to is the flip side of this whole thing, where on one hand you have the Russian opposition in Russia losing its faith in Ukraine. I don't see people like Ilya Panamarov, who has made his home in Ukraine, or Yevgeny Kislyov, the former television anchor at NTV, the, the, not, not Dmitry Kislyov, <laughs> Yevgeny Kislyov. Um, they, they certainly haven't lost their enthusiasm for Ukraine. What, 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 are, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think the, those people who resettled in Ukraine now see the situation in Ukraine as uh, much more difficult and much more detailed than uh, what has been seen from, from Moscow. Because in many cases, uh, from Moscow, Ukraine was seen as a better Russia. 
Russia or a project of a better Russia or more democratic Russia. But uh, Ukrainians uh, showed no appetite to become any kind of Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this issue of sovereignty is something which has been uh, really missed in, in Russia, that Ukrainians see themselves as a sovereign state. Ukrainians of the Ukrainian origin, of Russian origin, of Jewish origin or Crimean Tatar origin, they want to, to be a Ukrainian state, not a different, different type of Russian state. And uh, I think it's a new identity which has been born now in Ukraine, which uh, has been completely misunderstood in, in Russia, that um, the Ukrainians see Russian uh, liberals or Russian uh, um, authoritarians as uh, the same Russian imperialists uh, with different uh, sort of uh, set of uh, tools to bring Ukraine mm. back under the Russian control. Now, when you talk to people like Panamarov, he will say things like, you know, Russia is not going to be able to be free until Ukraine is free. And I think he's right about that, actually. I think he's right about that. How are the Russian emigres viewed? I mean, I know how the liberal opposition in Russia is viewed, but how are the how are the, the Russians, Russian citizens who have kept their Russian citizenship? To my knowledge, not, 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 I don't want to say none of them, but I, many of them have not taken Ukrainian citizenship. They've, they've, they've remained Russian citizens. How are they viewed in, in, in Ukraine? Well, they're viewed as uh, political refugees, mm-hmm. as uh, people who come uh, and uh, got uh, the hospitality of the state, but they're guests. Mm-hmm. They are not allowed to be uh, uh, critical. Uh, they're not seen positively when they criticize the Ukrainian states because they are expected to behave as guests. Right. Now, somebody like Panamarov, who has a special status, he was, of course, the only person in either house of Russian the Russian parliament to vote against the annexation of Crimea, which is, quite frankly, an amazingly brave act in Vladimir Putin's Russia. I mean, he he appears to have a special status there. I know he, he he's been courted by different political forces in Ukraine. Um, this is so some of the, some of these people are useful to to Ukrainian political forces. No. Um, yes, as uh, a showcase of a different kind of Russians who uh, really can be different because uh, very often in the Ukrainian society there is an an appeal, let's uh, find our friends in Russia and not all Russians are like that and then they bounce back when they uh, feel that uh, the, the, the the, when they see this misunderstanding uh, in Russia of the present present Ukrainian state. And as for his uh, ideas that uh, Russia cannot uh, be democratic unless Ukraine is democratic, I think it's the, it goes into the same sort of argument as about the uh, state control of the church that Ukrainians, uh, some Ukrainian uh, uh, deputies uh, decided to, uh, to adopt. I think it's uh, the policies that lead you in the authoritarian way which cannot which you have to stop at the very beginning mm-hmm. and uh, in this in this case uh, if you if you, Ukraine becomes a, a showcase of democracy if, if it becomes a, a really living and lively model then it can show the uh, the way for for the Russians but I, I don't think even in this case that it can be transferable uh, and replanted this model can be replanted in Russia yeah no I think the argument here is that you know the, the, the old saying uh, Russia without Ukraine is a state Russia with Ukraine as an empire. And if you could sever this, and I think it's in the interest of liberal Russians, and I think the smarter among them see that it's in their interest to have this this, this divorce 
take place. And by divorce, again, I'm not, I mean, divorce meaning you live side by side like any two normal countries, um, whether it be it Germany and France or America and Canada, um, then, then, then this will lead or could lead to a more liberal One Russia. thing that Ukrainians really want Russians uh, is to take care about themselves, is to leave Ukraine alone and uh, to take care about the, Ru- the Russian affairs. And I think in, in that case, they would serve a great service to the Ukrainians and themselves. Mm. Mark? It's almost to flip round the formulation. I mean, one could say that it's only when Russia is a normal democratic state that Ukraine will be truly free. Because so long as Russia is authoritarian, the temptation to precisely, whether it's because precisely you want to feel like an empire, whether it's because it's a way of leveraging better trade deals or whatever, the temptation, given the interconnectedness and the historical mm-hmm. pedigree, um, it, to, 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 to lean on, on Ukraine will be great. So in, in, in some ways, rather than saying it's, it's sort of that, it, that it's a, a responsibility of, of, of Russian liberals to help Ukraine be free and then they'll be free, one could almost make the case it's, 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 only, it's, it's every bit as much or every little bit as much Ukrainians' responsibility to help, to help Russia democratise. The bottom line is precisely it's Ukrainians who are going to build Ukraine and it's Russians who are going to yeah. build the, the, the future Russia. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the point is, to go back to this issue of um, Russian liberals' perspective, I mean, I think precisely Natalia hit it on the nail with that point about the fact that even Russian liberals, even people who are positive about Ukraine, saw it in terms of a, a variation on the theme of Russia rather than a country in and of itself. And I think part of the reason why Russian liberals are, are, are less enthusiastic about Ukraine is precisely because they're realising that. They're realising that there is no place for them, as it were, in the discussions about mm. Ukraine's future. That's nothing to do with them anymore. And, and, you know, no one likes to be excluded from a conversation. Well, it's very, I mean, it's interesting, again, bringing history back into it. But this, to, to a degree, reminds me of the, if you read about the debates about over Poland in the 19th century among Russian liberals, um, when Poland was trying to break free from the Russian emperor. But, Mark, I wouldn't push it quite that far. I think Ukraine can absolutely be free even if Russia remains illiberal. I, I think that's it will always be under pressure, just like Latvia is always under pressure or Lithuania or Estonia is always under pressure. Um, but it, but it, I think Ukraine can be free. And that's, I think, what this, this divorce is it, kind of insurance against this, that Ukraine can be free even if Russia isn't. And if Russia is, all the better. But, yeah, I wanted, no, but you made the point about sort of living side by side like normal countries, America, Canada, right. France, Germany. Well, precisely, both, you know, all of which are, are essentially you know, free democratic states mm. that recognize borders, right. that do all the various things that modern states do. Right. It's actually a lot harder if you're bordering yes. a China or a North Korea. But you can, be, you can be a vibrant democracy and border a China or a North Korea uh, I didn't or say a Russia. About that you can't be a democracy, but it's actually, I mean, okay, in part, we're, we're just quibbling over what free means. Mm. But certainly free from the constant free from, okay. threat and the constant interference. And you could argue that the Baltics are not free from that, even though they are free in the, in, in the sense. But uh, the other thing I wanted to touch on in this bit is the, the I've, all, I've often argued, and I firmly believe, that Russia's not going to change until it has a catharsis. I mean, a real catharsis. 
something similar to what the Germans went through after the Second World War. We cannot be this way anymore. It's self-destructive. And a lot of things can provoke a catharsis. It's usually a crisis of some sort, although God knows Russia's had its fair share of those and we haven't seen any catharsis yet. But I thought in the Russian mind, and now this is in no way to say that Ukraine is Russia's to lose, but in the Russian mind, losing Ukraine would be, I think, incredibly traumatic and could provoke such a catharsis. And this is the way where I think Panamadov is right. Russia is not going to be free until Ukraine is free. And I think I, I, th- I firmly believe that a, a truly successful westernized democratic Ukraine embedded in Western institutions, a member of the European Union, would really cause a lot of heads to explode in Moscow. Um, and that could provoke that catharsis, no? Um, I wouldn't think so because I think the catharsis can be something that uh, comes from within. You can't really impose it from uh, from outside. And even uh, Ukraine's divorce, which is very, very gradual, and uh, it will, it will take a lot of time. That uh, it won't it can't be a catalyst for for this kind of thing. I, I think it has to go from within the Russian society. Mark? Germany went through that after World War Two because it lost in really obvious ways and it had Allied tanks rumbling down its streets and so forth. If, if we want a kind of parallel, the, the risk of this is more like World War One mm. than World War Two is you lose, but then because it's it's you know catharsis is hard. It's a lot easier to think no, actually stab in the back myth. It's actually that our politicians let us down, or in this case, it's because the West stole Ukraine. I mean, there's all kinds of ways of getting around it. Apart from the fact that also this. Democratic EU member Ukraine is a long way coming, and I, I would sincerely hope that Russia can can move b- before that point. No, again, I mean, I, th- I think the thing is that that's an interesting. That would be an interesting wager to put down. Does Ukraine get into the EU before Russia <laughs> reaches a reasonable standard of pluralism and democracy? But I think the thing is, look, what 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 it comes down to is that yes, you sometimes have the kind of the big bang catharsis, which is actually, as I said, usually actually imposed from without. Or you you do have countries that slowly, incrementally go through that, um, that actually generationally, you know, I, I really don't think that today's 17-year-olds are in the same mindset as people who were 17 in 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that there is, and okay, it, it, it hasn't got this wonderful, heroic, um, historic sort of backlog waiting thing. Aha, end of part one, we now have part two. It's about the slow moving of one chapter to the next. So I, I think I think that actually, again, I mean, for different reasons, I come to the same conclusion as, as Natalia, is, is I think actually, even if Ukraine does go through this change quicker than we might think, Russia, if it's not ready for catharsis, will find umpteen reasons to not cathart. <laughs> that, that sounds like a, a nice a nice way to wrap it up unless anybody has some final thoughts before we, we call it a week alright well that's all we have time for today I'd like to remind you you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast my name is Brian Whitmore author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFRL Joining me here in the studio has been co-host Mark Galliotti, a senior researcher at the Institute of International Relations in Prague, head of its Center for European Security, and a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And also with us in the studio has been Natalia Chudikova, managing editor of RFRL's Ukrainian Service and host of the program European Connect. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion. 
It's a pleasure. We're in the enlightenment zone, thanks to Mark. So it was very enlightening. I'd also like to thank our brilliant, patient, and ridiculously overworked producer, Tanya Koncheva, and my t- indispensable and totally awesome colleague, Pavel Butorin, managing editor of RFRL's Russian-language television program, Current Time, which you can watch at www.currenttime.tv. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes. You could read the Power Vertical blog and watch the Daily Vertical at rfrl.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and now, as always, I leave you with the ambient sounds of my favorite socially conscious Russian rapper, Noise MC. Noise MC.